This is Larry Lessig. You have to give them hope. That was the most famous line from San Francisco's most famous member of its board of supervisors, Harvey Milk. Said in his speech on the steps of San Francisco City Hall during a mass rally to celebrate California Gay Freedom Day, June 25th, 1978. But however sacrilegious this may be, I think the line has a life outside of that profoundly important context. If we're ever going to make progress with a government that works, we have to begin by giving people hope that the idea of a government that works is, at least for us, not oxymoronic. That it is today oxymoronic is testament to the enormous power Ronald Reagan had in his ability to capture our imagination and make his ideas seem real. I remember as a kid, I was still a teenager, listening to Ronald Reagan's 1981 inaugural address, where he declared with infinite confidence, quote, government is not the solution to our problem. Government is the problem, end quote. And I remember feeling shaken and inspired by this extraordinary declaration. Here was an entity that we thought was here to help. It's not here to help. It is the problem. And persuading America of the truth of that statement has been the keen focus of many on the right for many, many years before Reagan spoke and for all of the years after he spoke. My favorite recent book, The Big Myth, by Eric Conway and Naomi Oreskes, tells the extraordinary story of the capital-driven campaign to convince America and the world that the only way we can save us is to unrestrain capitalism, and that every effort by government to help us inevitably does more harm than good, a slippery slope from good intentions to authoritarianism. If you try to do good, you will inevitably fail with the corollary that only those who are trying to benefit themselves ever do any good for the rest of us. It's an extraordinary thought. And yet, astonishingly, it's kind of how we all think about government now. At the least, we think it's inept. At the worst, we think it's corrupt. We might all recognize the huge problems we see before us, but too few see government as central to the solution of those problems. My guest today grew up in the libertarian movement. Like most great libertarians, he's grown tall enough to see beyond that movement alone. My first favorite book of his was written not with a libertarian, but a liberal, Stephen Tellis, The Captured Economy. That book described the many ways in which regulation had been structured to achieve a reverse trickle-down effect by sucking wealth from the lower and middle classes up. And that dynamic, of course, is what anyone focused on the failure of government would focus upon. But what's brilliant about that book is that it's not trying to convince us to do nothing. To the contrary, it's focused on getting us to fix these obvious problems so, in fact, government could do something good. And that's the nature of the conversation I'm going to have with Brink Lindsay today. How can we improve the efficiency of government, improve its ability, that is, to do the good that we all, or at least all of us in this conversation, believe it must do? How, in other words, could we have hope that government could indeed be the solution to the critical problems that any sensible soul would recognize we need to solve now? Brink Lindsay is widely respected as an author and analyst for his works examining economic growth, inequality, and the dynamics of globalization. He's the vice president and director of the Open Society Project at Niskanen Center and was for many years with the Cato Institute. He's a contributing editor at Reason Magazine and a frequent guest with the more famous of these podcasts, including Blogging Heads TV. Beyond the captured economy with Tellus, he's the author of The Age of Abundance, How Prosperity Transformed American Politics and Culture, and Human Capitalism, How Economic Growth Has Made Us Smarter and More Unequal. 
I've not read the last book, but knowing Brink a bit more, I'm going to assume he agrees that making us all more unequal is not, all things considered, a good thing. Stay tuned for the conversation. Brink, thank you so much for talking to us. So the subject I want to ask you to think about, and it's based on your writing, but I'm going to ask you to think a little bit beyond your writing, is the general problem that you describe of our governance capacity, the ability um, to actually bring about the objectives which we've set at a policy level in a practical way. And your work has spanned a wide range of contexts where structures develop that interfere with that capacity. So one class of examples I'm thinking of comes from your book, The Captured Economy, where you can see the self-interest of participants in the political process creating barriers to government achieving what any of us from a welfare perspective would think makes sense. Um, And then another interesting set of cases are cases where you're almost identifying the ideology of different movements, the conservative movement, the progressive movement, that builds barriers to the capacity of government to um, to actually achieve what it's what it's trying to achieve. I want to start with the um, the captured economy ideas, though, and my objective is just to help those in this uh, in this podcast kind of understand the flavor of the examples and enough to make it easy for them to begin to look at all the other contexts where they're going to find the same dynamic that you're describing here. Because even though you describe, uh, you know, six clear cases there, um, um, I think both of us think that we can we can find it. So, I, you know, you tell me what your favorite is to, to introduce this topic, because um, there's a lot of great uh, stuff uh, in the captured economy. But um, is it finance or is it um, licensing, which you think is the most... You know, surprising where somebody doesn't think about it when they first. Well, think uh, or we could take housing and land use. Good. Uh, Good. So just to back up a little bit, uh, the the big picture, which is what I've been doing more recently, is this issue of state capacity, uh, which started out as a sort of political science and and economic history term uh, in looking at the fact that uh, when uh, societies got rich, their governments also simultaneously got strong. Not necessarily big and, and you know, uh, multitasked, uh, but they, they uh, uh, became able to raise a lot of money. Uh, they became uh, effective at uh, securing public order, uh, and they started to be able to provide, you know, public goods in an effective and pro-social way. Um, so... Um, Right now, when we look at a lot of the problems of governance that we're experiencing, uh, they come down to a, a breakdown uh, in in the space between intentions and results. Uh, that the that policies are being designed in a poor way, or implemented in a poor way, or something is derailing them along the way. They're being misconceived uh, uh, at the at the outset. Why? Uh, so anyway, we've got a we've got a whole lot of problems uh, and. And uh, we can identify sort of interest group reasons for, for policy dysfunction, for deviations of policymaking from furtherance of the public interest. And we can look at ideological uh, uh, reasons, uh, which has been a sort of a more recent focus of mine. But to go back to The Captured Economy, which is a, a book that Steve Tellis, who's a political scientist uh, and an Scannon Center colleague, uh, he's a political scientist at Johns Hopkins. Uh, we wrote this book together. Uh, in 2017, back when I was still with the Cato Institute. So it was this novelty idea of a libertarian and a a, a think tanker and a liberal professor teaming up and finding common ground uh, in uh, the suite of policies that we refer to as upward redistribution. Uh, That is, uh, policies that, uh, that simultaneously uh, gum up the works of market competition, usually by putting up barriers to entry and impeding competition and, and preventing new entrants, and uh, redistributes income and wealth up the socioeconomic spectrum. So uh, we came at this originally, uh, look, Steve looking for ways to tackle the problems of high inequality, uh, me uh, looking for uh, ways to revive uh, sluggish 21st century growth, 
and finding like in the old uh, Reese's commercial that we got our peanut butter and chocolate together uh, and it tasted great uh, because uh, he had written an article uh, for National Affairs and I'd written a Cato paper, me a growth agenda and, and he an equal, inequality agenda, but both with the idea of crossing ideological boundaries to get things done in a polarized time. And we came up with a very similar uh, bunch of policy ideas. So we decided to write the book. So I just, I just want to make sure that we're clarifying, making a very important point clear. So there's a, there's a fierce debate, at least in the political world. I don't know if economists really debate this anymore about whether trickle down economics exists or makes sense. Um, this is a kind of trickle up economics that you're describing um, and and whereas trickle-down economics might have political valence, like one side might like it, the other side might not, nobody should like trickle-up economics um, or nobody right. in a, in a yeah. Political, yeah. Uh, politically neutral no, nobody way. Except, nobody, yes, nobody except the most influential people right. in the country. Right, Surprise, surprise. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, yes. So, uh, so we picked four case studies, two at the federal policy level, two at the state and local level, at the federal level, financial regulation, uh, and there you have... Uh, a system of financial regulation that creates windfall gains for a very small number of people and massively inflates the incomes of the top 1%. Uh, and me meanwhile, regularly exposes the economy to economic meltdowns and, uh, and possible depressions uh, through instability. Uh, and then more chronically, seems to starve the economy of uh, or to, to undermine innovation and productivity growth by misallocating resources to things that are easily financeable by standard financial institutions. So that's a one big issue. The second federal policy case study uh, we looked at is one near and dear to your heart, which is patent and copyright uh, protection, or known as intellectual property law. Um, intellectual property being uh, one of those just great marketing coups uh, up there with the Republicans, you know, death tax. Uh, um, the, the idea that these temporary monopolies extended to uh, copyright holders and patent holders uh, for reasons to serve the public interest, to encourage the arts, to encourage innovation, uh, but the idea that these are actually the same thing as fee simple in land uh, and and, and if private property in goods is good and uh, the American way, then private property in intangibles uh, is similarly sort of beyond debate about, uh, about costs and benefits. This is a sort of a key principle such that the people on the wrong side of the issue we call thieves and pirates. <laughs> so anyway, all of that sets up a system uh, that uh, creates, again, temporary monopolies and therefore windfall gains uh, for... Some of the richest people in the world are uh, IP holders in high tech. But meanwhile, as you well know, policies that at a certain modest, modest level can accomplish some good have metastasized to the point uh, that they are significant bars uh, to innovation uh, these days. Um, so those were those two case studies. Then we looked at occupational licensing, uh, which is very broad. There are hundreds of occupations now subject to licensing. Back in the 50s, only about 5% of the workforce was subject to licensing. Now it's about 20 to 25%. But we focus particularly on the oldest uh, and best known forms of licensing for, uh, for the legal and medical professions, where uh, they are part of a whole system of artificial constraints on supply designed to, uh, to drive up uh, incomes for those professions. So, uh, and then finally, uh, we looked at, uh, at land use and zoning laws uh, that, uh, especially in the big coastal cities, but more and more throughout the country, anywhere where, uh, where there's demand to live somewhere, uh, you're getting NIMBY, not in my backyard, uh, responses of making it harder and harder to build new housing. Uh, and so, therefore, uh, the demand to move into cities uh, is expressed not in new housing instruction, but in uh, rising uh, home costs windfalls for incumbent homeowners, and uh, which is actually a significant part of the rise in wealth inequality uh, in the past generation or so, uh, really comes down to, uh, to, to property values, uh, but is uh, uh, terrible for the country on a whole bunch of different fronts. It's bad for economic growth because it keeps people from moving to the places where they're making the most GDP. Um, it's uh, bad for racial and income-based segregation. Uh, it's bad for uh, the planet because it encourages sprawl. Uh, so there's just a, a whole 
range of different ways in which uh, our current patterns of land use, which are driven by uh, regulation, are dysfunctional. Um, so, so we looked at, in our case studies, we thought that we would sort of gradually expand the scope of potential readers that we would be alienating with our arguments. Uh, so we, <laughs> we, we figured there'd be a few bankers who would read our books, and, and of course, some people in tech that would. Uh, and then, yes, yeah, some doctors and lawyers for sure would read our book, but then we get all the rest with uh, taking a dig at homeowners. So anyway. Yeah, let's start with the land use one, because I think it's a great example, and um just to make the point very tangible. So, you know, I, I am fortunate to live in a very beautiful um, quasi-suburb of Boston, a place called Brookline, um, which has lots of zoning rules which pr uh, prohibit building of multi-unit facilities in, in many, many contexts. Um, so the dynamic you're describing is if people who are interested in, you know, affordable housing come to the town meeting and they say, we want the following proposal to allow multi-unit um, facilities. And then somebody from uh, the other side stands up and says, well, you know that the housing value um, is going to fall in your district if this change is made. Everybody who has any power in the uh, town of Brookline <laughs> would rise up and say, hell no, because why would we adopt a policy that basically throws away the value of our house um, or part of the value of our house? And what you're describing is this pattern is an obvious um, pattern in every context where this question might get raised, which is why when the question gets raised, it's rarely answered in a way that facilitates more housing. Yeah. And the, and the problem, I mean, we the, the folks on the pro-housing, housing liberalization side uh, have a tendency to sort of demonize the opposition and, and demonize NIMBYism. But, but really, there's, it's just utterly inevitable that there are hassles associated with new construction, and those hassles fall disproportionately on the people in the immediate neighborhood. So they, they have a predisposition uh, to just status quo bias and the temporary hassles of construction, uh, the real possibility of worse traffic in the future if infrastructure doesn't keep up with, with new entrants. Uh, all of that naturally predisposes people in the immediate neighborhood uh, to be hostile to new construction. That's not the problem. The problem is that people in the immediate neighborhood are given such disproportionate influence over land use decisions because these decisions don't just affect those people. They affect all the people who could move into this area. They affect the whole metro area and its economic prospects. But typically, land use decisions are really done on a micro basis, parcel by parcel, uh, and only a tiny group of potential stakeholders have a seat at the table. Uh, and that, again and again and again, we, uh, we, we look at uh, bad policies. Uh, and Steve, uh, my co-author and the political scientist, really drummed this into me, that when you, when you see a bad policy, you, you need to look for a bad policymaking process. Like if parts are coming off the assembly line defective, you've got to find this, the place that the things are going wrong. And typically, it's, it's an imbalance in representation uh, that when one side just isn't at the table at all, the other side completely dominates. Uh, and then there are things that give one side disproportionate influence. If a subject is god-awfully complicated, like financial regulation uh, or IP, uh, the insiders have an expertise that they can use to intimidate uh, and use as squid ink uh, to, uh, because there's a real dependency of the government on their expertise, and, but it's not going to be presented straight. So uh, there's all kinds of ways in which imbalances of who's at the table when, when policies are, are conceived and, and, and drafted uh, can show up. But that's a common denominator, and it's certainly the case in, in, in zoning. So one response to this, which as I was both reading this work and also the, um, the more recent work that I, that I just want to ask you about is you might think of it as a kind of anti-federalism response, but, but the more general way to describe it is we ought to be evaluating at what level a decision should be made um, by deciding which level would include the right mix of interest in that decision. So making the land use decision at the most local level, your point is, um, defeats that objective because obviously there's a whole bunch of people whose interests are affected who aren't part of that decision. So we should up it to the place where those people could be part of the process. Um, and, and that might be at the city level, it might be at the state level, it might be at the federal level. But the point is, we should be deciding the level based on where we have confidence that everybody whose interest is affected, or you know, not everybody, but enough, um, are actually part yes. of the process. 
Yes, that that I, I don't think. Yeah, on these federalism issues, uh, sometimes local decision making is uh, a good thing because uh, you're close to the ground, you're close to the participants. Uh, but sometimes you're only close to a, a very small, uh, you know, share of the relevant participants, uh, and so therefore, you know, excessively local decision making is 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 bad. Uh, and so and and so yes, uh, and we're fine. So if you move uh, land use decisions up to the municipal level, you could picture having. Uh, a, a housing budget, right? So, uh, uh, like a target, a, a five-year target, you're going to increase housing by X percent. And until those targets are met, or as, are, are and uh, as, only as long as you're on course to meet those targets, uh, then then you can't do any you know down zoning at all. Uh, so you can have you know restrictions on on what you can do. You can have uh, mechanisms at the uh, at the municipal level uh, to. To share some of the tax revenues that are going to come from extra construction with the immediate neighborhood. Uh, so presently, we have mechanisms where the actual builder will pay off the neighborhood, uh, uh, but that co- increases the cost yeah. of construction. Uh, if if that if the payoff could come out of tax revenues, that would be more efficient. Meanwhile, you can move uh, decision making up to the state level. So that's what we're seeing in California: real real breakthroughs after. You know, decades of just utterly uh, sordid misgovernment uh, and and the slow burning of this fuse towards this terrible housing crisis that California is currently experiencing. Well, they're finally getting serious uh, about doing things, and it's a tenacious fight. Uh, but they're they're winning victories, and and it's occurring by by moving decision making up to the state level, and then having the state ride herd on the localities to make sure that they follow through. So. Occupational licensing is a different kind of unrepresentativeness, right? So, I, I mean, the medical and lawyers ones, um, I think people intuitively have a sense of, and that argument's pretty familiar. But what I loved about the book was the extraordinary range of occupations that get licensed. You know, even things like barbers or like beauty, you know, beauty salons, or yeah. all of these really, you know, seems not rocket science like professions. You have a licensing process. You could have imagined initially there would have been a pro-public interest justification, like let's make sure somebody's haircut is not terrible because it could really make them sad. But it, but in the end, it's it's really just those who are in the business trying to protect themselves from those who are not in the business or protecting themselves from this. It's an interesting, I don't think there's a really good history of of the takeoff of, of, of licensing in the United States, but I have a feeling it, it starts semi-innocently that a whole bunch of professions want to up their prestige, want to up their status, want to you know, have some code uh, that they meet, and that shows that they are, you know, high-quality uh, service providers. Um, and and they get a trade association, uh, and the trade association wants to, uh, you know, promulgate this code. And then also now you've got a trade association, and they want stuff to do, uh, so they want to lobby in this uh, to, on behalf of, uh, to, of of their profession and show that they're useful. So you get a kind of a path to dependency of creating lobbies for your for your interest, but but then of course always that your the water's running downhill, uh, which is that the incumbents uh, all of this is tending towards uh, coming up with laws uh, that make it hard that you know that that you have to pass some test uh, before you can uh, before you can do this job, uh, and uh, those are presented to the public as a mechanism for keeping out you know uh, disreputable operators and ensuring high quality. Typically, when you look at it, the tests are terribly, there's no demonstration of any efficacy along those lines. Also, as a licensed professional, supposedly, if you, you know, uh, if you behave unprofessionally, you could lose your license. But in fact, licensing, uh, you know, license revocations are laughably rare. And in the case of medical profession, they're almost always only about like, Dealing drugs to to patients or having sex with patients—they're never about negligence and incompetence. So anyway, uh, they're they they have you know they got a plausible sell, uh, but but in real life, what they do is basically just restrict supply uh, and therefore boost incomes without really enhancing quality. Medicine's medicine's a great example. Um, where there's plausibly a very good public policy reason why this process began. Paul Starr tells this story in 
um, in, in his history of the evolution of medicine. Because, you know, medicine in the 19th century was, was poison, basically. You know, you had all these quacks who were, like, pr- producing all sorts of, quote, medicines that they would give people, and they would literally be poisons. I mean, they'd be heroin. They'd, um, and so the profession needed to find a way to begin to distinguish some, you know, good, really scientific-driven, science-driven um, people from others. But as it gets copied, it's obviously just a way to protect yourselves against um, against these other competitors who obviously, uh, you know, could be just as good as you. Yeah, and of course, for medicine, we want, you know, people uh, who are who have our lives in our hands, we want them to be highly trained, right? But we, and, and so we tend to think, well, of course we want licenses for doctors. Uh, but it turns out uh, that, so the license that you get from the state is a license to practice medicine. Uh, so if you go and uh, and get a residency in podiatry uh, and you pass the state medical exam, you can hang out your shingle uh, as a brain surgeon. It's not illegal. It's just nobody would go. Nobody was going to go to you because you're not a board certified brain surgeon. But board certification is completely voluntary. And of course, no hospital is going to hire you to do brain surgery uh, because you're not board certified and because they got to pay negligence. They got to pay malpractice. Uh, insurance premia, and uh, they, they want to keep those premia low. Uh, so uh, there's all kinds of other mechanisms, just the, the uh, you know, commercial uh, incentives to, uh, to uh, hospitals and larger medical practices not to hire unqualified people, operating on top of a very low baseline for qualification, which is, uh, which is just a GP qualification. So, uh, so we're, not, we're not licensing brain surgeons at all. Uh, that's all happening uh, uh, through voluntary certification uh, and through commercial pressures. Uh, and so um, we tend to find that there's very little relevant quality control happening mm-hmm. uh, through medical licensure. But through medical licensure and through the restriction in the number of medical uh, school slots, which is controlled by the AMA, and through the restriction in the number of residencies, um, and through the requirement that doctors to practice in the United States have to complete a residency, have to complete their training in the United States, can't do it in Canada, can't do it in Europe, can't, sometimes they can do it in Canada, but can't do it in Europe. So all kinds of protectionist measures to, to squeeze the supply and uh, boost their incomes, right. which is, why, which is one, one important reason why doctors in the United States make a lot more than uh, they do anywhere else. Right. So... What's interesting about that explanation is it's trading on what feels like a, a neutral justification, which is like quality. But we can obviously see that it's in lots of contexts, especially like hair salons. Um, that's a pretty weak justification for restricting access. Um, there's a related kind of complementing uh, justification in the context of intellectual property, um, which I think that the book is really, really wonderful and taking apart. You're right, I spent a lot of time unsuccessfully trying to advance the constitutional problem with uh, the intellectual property issue in some context. So the context we were fighting was the extension of existing copyright terms. So, you know... The retrospective extension, right? Right, retrospective, right. So you (laughs) you can... We can have an argument about how long it needs to be to create incentives. Like, does it have to be 10 years or 20 years? The idea that it's even longer than 20 years is crazy. But what we know about... You can't incentivize dead people, yeah. Right, right. (laughs) Right. So this (laughs) argument, when we were trying to advance it constitutionally, you know, we even... Milton Friedman said he would sign an economist brief only if the word no-brainer was in the brief somewhere, because so (laughs) obvious was it that it couldn't have a public policy justification. But at the same time that we were advancing this policy or this economic rationale, the other side was advancing this kind of self-actualization conception of property, like it's my work. It's like what I created. Um, and so therefore you're taking something of mine. Um, and, and that intuitive, intuitive idea is pretty strong. It's coming back in the context of the debate about AI and whether AI machines can read everybody's work on the web. And, and you're like, well, it's mine. Um, but, but it really forces us to decide what is it we're trying to accomplish through this massive regulation of intellectual property. Are we trying to create more innovation and creativity, or are we you know, trying to be allocated and protecting the personalities of people expressed in all sorts of different forms? Is, is, that, is that the problem as you saw it? 
so so I think the as I you know mentioned earlier, I think the marketing of patent and copyright protection as intellectual property protection is a is a masterstroke and is a just a thought killer. Uh, it just induces brain fog in in uh, in legislators uh, that. They they just associate anybody talking about liberalizing these rules with people who just don't take property seriously. Mm-hmm. So there is it moralizes their side in a wonderfully uh, you know wonderfully effective way, a terribly a tragically effective way. But yes, so that's uh, and at the Niskanen Center, a lot of, of of our work has just been patiently just continuing to hammer away, particularly with with you know uh, right of you know with Republican pro market folks to look at. Uh, at these laws, uh, not as property, because it just it just doesn't work, and it's, that's a complicated argument to get into. But it just <laughs> those arguments are really really weak. But to look at them as, as government, you know, regulation, uh, and uh, you typically you do you typically favor a light touch in that. So so let's be let's apply some of your typical skepticism about government interventions in the marketplace to this particular. But that is a massive barrier to, to clear thinking. Yeah, uh, especially in a country like the United States, where the coolest people are all from Hollywood. Um, so, <laughs> right. And, and so, but then on the, you know, on the, on the progressive democratic side, yeah. uh, the natural association with the, the creative types, uh, is, and, and their strong representation on the left, uh, get, makes them sympathetic characters and wanting to, and it, it sounds like you're in favor of creativity and innovation that those are great things to be in favor of. Mm-hmm. When Democrats wanted to present, you know, uh, themselves as pro-business, uh, it was nice to find, you know, uh, uh, the recording industry and the tech industry, which were clean and non-polluting and didn't, you know, abuse workers. So they were they were good businesses to be uh, in the pockets of. <laughs> uh, yeah. uh, but uh, it's uh, it's all, you know, it's it's all headed off the rails pretty badly. Okay, you mentioned you have you talk about one other case, which is really interesting. Uh, we're not going to go into the finance case. I want to I want to offer a gift though, as we pass from this to the other. Uh, channel of work. Um, here's another example you're going to really love. So um, my friend Daniel Biss, who ran for governor in uh, Illinois um, on the Democratic ticket and, and, and didn't win in the primary, but then became mayor of uh, Evanston, uh, describes that when he was in the state legislature, he noticed something pretty profound about the, state, um, the state's uh, um, pension funds. So that basically there were three major public pension funds police and fire and government employees. And um, those three pension funds were run separately in every county in the state of Illinois. <laughs> so you had 60, I think it's 67 counties where each county had three separate pension boards that would meet, you know, quarterly to review the investments. Um, and, uh, um, and you know, Biss's obvious point was, my God, if we just put all of this money together in one fund, <laughs> yes. the cost yes. would be radically lower and the return would be much mm-hmm. higher. So why do we do that? So he introduced this legislation. And of course, it was dead on arrival because every one of those petty, you know, bureaucrats who, you know, lawyers or whatever at the county level, like went down to... Um, uh, Springfield and, and, and said, this is a destruction of the confidence that we're going to have in the pension system. And, you know, he couldn't, yes. he couldn't even move <laughs> it. So like what should have been the obvious mm. example, I mean, in a state like Illinois, which is suffering because of the cost of these pensions, like dramatically, yes. even there, yes. you can't get clear thinking to get us ahead. Um, so, yeah, any, anytime you see uh, uh, a, a, you know, a governance outcome, which just makes no policy sense. It makes very good political sense That's somewhere. That's a great way to put right? it. Yeah. Um, okay, now I'm going to shift to the later work, which I do find incredibly interesting because I think it's very powerful and important to recognize the way ideolo- ideologies on both sides are producing in, in unplanned ways, obviously, like really harmful consequences to our capacity to govern, which is a very nice way you've described it. I want to talk about a couple of the examples, but I want to focus, um, I want to, um, focus uh, on... An example, which is suggested, uh, but which we we could fill out a bit, which is the um, Inflation Reduction Act, or the the whole uh, objective of dealing with climate change through all of these government incentive programs, which have been produced, which presume a capacity, which I want to see whether we have any real reason to think about. And in a very practical example, too, which you don't talk directly about, but which, you know, it's going to be easy to hum the tune um, about rail 
um, like you know, high-speed rail, for example, which is something right. we've been totally incapable of doing, but lots of other countries right. do it quite well. But let's start with the, the framing. Like, so what are the two ideological frames which yield the same unproductive policy outcome here? Yeah, so I, I think the the sort of public analog to our inability to build houses is our inability to build public infrastructure. Uh, and uh, the former is is become a crisis uh, because unaffordability levels have hit crisis levels in major municipalities across the country. The latter is now becoming a crisis because of climate change. Uh, that uh, that to make uh, the uh, successful uh, and successfully rapid uh, transition to clean energy is going to require just enormous amounts of construction and building new things. Uh, but our entire political economy is set up to make building new things very, very hard. And the fault for that lies significantly on the progressive side. But when we look at the ideological origins of, of state incapacity, uh, of undermining the state's ability to do what it wants, uh, to affect its will, there's the obvious story of the rise of the libertarian right uh, since the, the 70s uh, and this kind of small government conservatism, which might have originated uh, as a you know, useful corrective to, uh, to 60s liberal largesse and to just a quarter century of rapid government growth and just sort of a let's tap the brakes and think about things. And, and there were a whole lot of areas where government was doing things poorly. So it uh, could have started out you know, as a sensible corrective, but which over time has curdled into this just sort of toxic hostility to the public sector as such that Ronald Reagan said uh, his, his famous line from the inaugural, the government isn't the solution, it's the problem, was either preceded or, or followed by in this crisis. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. uh, but that, that dropped out. And so it just became uh, this sort of self-fulfilling pro prophecy that uh, the government can't accomplish anything. So it's fine if we appoint total hacks into government because they can't do anything anyway. And when they totally mess things up. That just furthers our ideological point that you can't trust government to do anything. Um, that, that dynamic, we've seen that play out and we see how it, how it pushes government into a whole lot of dysfunctional ways of accomplishing things to get around that ideological hostility. Um, all kinds of reliance on, on tax credits and, and tax incentives rather than just spending programs, which end up benefiting the wrong people and not accomplishing things correctly. Huge reliance on, on government contractors uh, rather than hiring new civil servants. We had the same number of civilian government employees now uh, that we did in the 60s, about 2 million, uh, despite the fact that the scope and complexity of government has just grown many, many, many fold. Uh, the difference is made up by a, a huge invisible army of contractors. I, I want to pause on that point because it's a really powerful point you make. The presumption that got the government contracting game going was that the contractors would be cheaper than the government employees. Right, uh, because the private sector is better. Right, right. right. Uh, but once you cross right. that bridge and you just have a commitment to doing things in the private sector, then those costs are wildly greater than the cost of doing it. Right. In the public yeah. Sector. Yeah. So you know, government has always relied on contractors, but but you need a hawk-eyed principal to look after the agents. Mm -hmm. uh, and when the agents overwhelm the number of principals, then they just run them off, and there's a huge principal-agent problems. Mm -hmm. uh, and so we we experience those. So anyway, the right the the of, of of hostility to government producing kind of dysfunctional government uh, is a familiar one. One that's come into focus just in recent years uh, and that I highlighted in this paper I did on state capacity is uh, had its origins in the, in the turn of liberalism during the 60s from the kind of New Deal era uh, to the new left tinged post-60s liberalism. Uh, there's a very good book written uh, by a Yale historian, Paul Sabin, called Public Citizens, I think, about this turn, and particularly a central figure is Ralph Nader. But we know the story of the, of the right, of, you know, suspicion of government on the right, and from Goldwater to Reagan, that whole story of, of libertarian or take over the Republican Party and Republican take over the government. But likewise, there was a kind of libertarian turn on the left uh, that there were that people on the left had a whole lot of reasons to be suspicious of government power. They had reasons to be suspicious of you know sheriff's offices in the South uh, brutalizing African Americans. They had reasons to be suspicious of 
the government in Vietnam, uh, of the, the government and the military industrial complex building nuclear weapons that threatened everybody on earth. Um, they had reasons to, in the newly dawning environmental consciousness, they had reason to be suspicious of government working hand in glove with dirty polluting industries. Uh, so, uh, whereas the New Deal liberals saw government as a tool to serve the public interest, they wanted to make it muscular. Uh, they didn't want a lot of oversight from the judiciary. Uh, they just wanted to have the right people in charge and get enough power and get things done. But by the 60s, people on the left were, were disillusioned with or disenchanted with that model. And, and for many important ways, another important one, that technocratic, big muscular government gave us urban renewal uh, and the, so ma the, the, you know, the mass uh, dislocation of, of, of ethnic and African-American neighborhoods and the sort of murder of cities with, with transecting highways. So anyway, there was a lot of reason for pushback. So, so what we got was this public interest liberalism, uh, uh, Ralph Nader, you know, epitomizing, uh, with the new thrust not being uh, to ensure uh, that government has a lot of carte blanche power, but rather to ensure that every turn government is subject to second guessing mm -hmm. uh, by uh, self-appointed guardians of the public interest. Mm -hmm. um, and so you would have this army of Nader's Raiders and, and other public interest groups that grew up like, you know, like Topsy during the 60s and 70s. And you had the change in standing rules to make it much easier uh, for, uh, for uh, these kind of groups to, uh, to sue. You had all the new regulatory legislation being created in the 60s and 70s, opening up to litigation. Um, and so a very different model of government, again, created with you know, very clear, uh, important int intentions, uh, but steering between sort of the scylla of Robert Moses, you know, just trampling over neighborhoods and property rights and people's lives versus the Charybdis of where we are now, which is just, you know, uh, mixing metaphors. It's, it's Gulliver tied down by a million Lilliputians, uh, uh, not able to accomplish anything. Um, so there's, there's some happy medium that we missed somewhere along the line, but, but that, that the origins of, of kind of libertarian tinged progressive suspicion of government translating into the empowerment of this unaccountable vitocracy, which now is able to make it very difficult for government to accomplish really important things, is uh, has come to a head. Uh, and, and in particular, it's come to a head because the whole meaning of being an environmentalist uh, has changed. Uh, back when the environmental movement started, they were standing athwart history yelling, stop. Uh, the, their whole goal was there are a bunch of dirty industries polluting the planet and we need to slow them down and make it harder for the, them to impose these external costs on all the rest of us. Um, and they had some signal successes. Now the challenge is different. Now facing climate change, we've got to build stuff. We've got to build a whole lot of stuff and we've got to build it fast. So we have an entire mindset, ideological formations, interest group formations, governance formations built around the worthy goal of slowing bad stuff from happening, which are now making it almost impossible for good stuff to happen. Uh, but, but that crisis is creating some rethinking, particularly on the progressive side. We're seeing it in Ezra Klein's regular columns on supply-side liberalism, uh, supply-side progressivism. Derek Thompson, The Atlantic's writing regularly about an abundance agenda. Uh, so these ideas are, are taking root on the center left. There is now a dawning recognition that, of their own ideological complicity in, in the problems that are currently making governance so difficult. So um, let's think about it in the particular context of um, climate change uh, and the strategy that would be most effective to be pursuing right now. And, um, you know, so... Broadly, you can think there's two types of strategies. One way you might think of as a climate, as a carbon tax strategy, um, which is like about imposing costs inside the system and letting the system take care of itself. And the other is the strategy of the IRA, which is to say we've got lots of incentive structures we're going to build and lots of intent to build, as you're describing, infrastructure to deal with this. Between these two strategies, given the kind of governmental um, incapacity that's been produced by the Nader Raider cultures, which would be the better strategy to deploy? I mean, we could, we, we could, and we should also think about how to undo the harm from the Nader Raider strategies. But given the Nader Raider strategies, which of these two would be most effective to bring about climate change? Up? Yeah. So, uh, you know, as a recovering libertarian, uh, I, uh, <laughs> I, you know, I, I see the elegance of the carbon tax 
uh, as a climate policy because it it uh, it economizes on government competence. Government's pretty good at taxing. Uh, it doesn't require government to. It, it then you know pushes everything to the private sector. It incentivizes them to figure things out on their own on the ground. And so I I, I think to me that's the first best thing you should be be doing. At the same time, I think there are. Uh, collective action problems with regard to innovation, uh, that, uh, that, that there are reasons for the government to support uh, R&D. And in the climate context, it, it turns out that R&D just isn't, isn't doing just stuff in the lab, uh, that right now we have the technologies, the key is the cost. And to, to drive innovations that drive down cost is, is to head down learning curves, which means uh, requirements uh, to build out uh, or to subsidize building out uh, solar infrastructure, even when it was cost competitive, could be seen, I think, as a utterly defensible and now, in retrospect, a highly effective R&D expenditure. Because, in particularly Germany, back uh, uh, you know a decade or more ago, was pouring a lot of money into into uh, encouraging solar. Uh, and everybody was laughing at them because uh, the prices weren't going down. Uh, but the, they, uh, are, are, but they have now fallen dramatically over time because the industry has been going down this learning curve. And so prices have fallen ninety percent uh, mm-hmm. over the past decade or so. Uh, so it's really a dramatic, uh, you know, Silicon Valley style uh, win. Uh, but but that has occurred because of government support for R and D through actual mandates. So I think there's a larger case for R&D support uh, in addition to the carbon tax. Meanwhile, unfortunately, uh, carbon tax, uh, despite its you know blackboard elegance, is an ugly duckling in the political theater. Mm-hmm. Um, it's uh, it's uh, has a very very difficult time uh, getting public support and getting enacted uh, in a lot of green jurisdictions that have tried. Um, so carbon pricing generally, either taxing or through pricing emissions. Both turn out to be very, very hard to do, uh, and so the direct support of subsidies is, you know, could be the, you know, politically possible uh, second best solution. That, however, isn't really a solution uh, unless right. you overcome overcome these bottlenecks. And so, and likewise with the carbon tax, if you're incentivized people to build but they can't build, uh, right. then you, you still have those bottlenecks. So we, we're going to have to deal with the just tangle. So we have to have, if we build these huge solar facilities, we've got to then connect them to where people live. Uh, and so we have to build a whole new infrastructure of transmission uh, to get clean energy resources to, to where the demand is. Uh, and there is just a absolute maze of a thicket of state, local, uh, and federal permitting issues that have to be gone through uh, to get this done. Uh, and so there. There are now, there's an appreciation of this problem. There are some tentative steps towards, uh, towards making it easier. But it's, it's, a, it's a real huge regulatory problem that has to be overcome to make the IRA, you know, actually do what it's intending to do. So is the solution that's being deployed just becoming more efficient in going through the permitting processes? Or is it, to, you know, almost exercising a supremacy power to kind of just displace the local policies and say, we have a national policy here, and so therefore, here's the permit you need to build this facility. Yeah, I, I think in some cases it's got to be it's it's it has to be you know consolidation of the requirements, mm-hmm. not because it's they're too various right now. But I, I'm not I'm not filled in on the details. My colleagues uh, at the Niskanen Center know all this chapter and verse, so I encourage people interested in this to uh, to check out our work in, in that area. Yeah, we'll we'll link to that. Um, but in the context of like the kind of permitting issues that are involved, it seems like there's a number of dimensions, right? So there's that you, you're pointing to. So, so some are obvious kind of land use uh, permitting issues. Some are environmental permitting issues. Some are right. employment permitting issues. You've got to have the right kind of mix of people in the employment. Like, and so the point you're making in the argument about vitocracy is that when you have so many dimensions of uh, restriction or requirements that you've got to clear in order to engage or to actually build, Failing in any of these can basically stop a project, which makes these projects so complicated and expensive and, and take so yep. long to do. Yes. Um, is the same, so, so this is the same story we would tell if we were thinking about, for example, rail. This is exactly why we've got um, no high-speed rail in the United States. Same story. Uh, I mean, there's, there's 
the, the depressing thing with the infrastructure costs. So there, there's there's delays make everything more expensive, uh, and so if you can litigate and and produce delays that way, uh, but if you change the project as you go along again and again, and often that happens because of interaction with litigation, uh, that inflates costs and it induces delays, which inflate costs as well. So meanwhile, uh, we just, like, if you look at, you know, why does building uh, a mile of, 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 you know, subway in the United States cost some multiple of what it costs in France or Spain or Germany, not not the Wild West, places that have high labor standards and high labor costs. Uh, but why is it so expensive here? And the the maddening thing is it's is it's it's not any one thing. It's like every single phase of the operation is bloated, mm -hmm. uh, and so it's just like it feels like a more just a general cultural trend, just an, an overwhelming cultural trend. We're just going to you know, take care of the insiders and, uh, and, and everybody else can go stuff themselves. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's just where this sort of complacent place where we kind of had decided that the whole built environment's done. We don't have to do anything new. We're just going to freeze everything in place and make everybody happy that way. But that's just not the way the world works. Reality has bitten back. People want to move to different places. And if they won't build houses for them, uh, then that causes problems. The climate's warming. Uh, we got to do something about that. So this kind of fantasy we had since the '70s that we could just sort of turn, you know, turn the world off and and not change the built environment in any important way ever again. Uh, we just got to wake up from that. Yeah. No. It's, it's a rude. It's a rude awakening. Yeah, because the the, the, the what's at stake is so great. Um, but I want to link this back now, just at the end, to to a point we agreed on at the very beginning. So in the context of thinking about um, land use policies. You know, as a general way of understanding the problem was that we were not at the right level of uh, a decision maker. Like you, you know, if in Brookline you had to decide these policies alone, you would not take into account all the people who would like to move into Brookline or like to move into the area. So that was about getting at the right level to include the right range of people. In this context, it's a, it's a, it's conceptually similar but structurally different. So it's not about the right people; it's about the right level to be able to trade off different kinds of interests. Because, you know, you start and you think about the land use interests. Those are important. And so you have 20 things you've got to do to think about, you know, erosion and all sorts of things that might be affected there. And then you have a bunch of things to think about with employment interests. And you have a bunch of things to think about with each of these dimensions uh, that you might be invoking to decide whether to go forward. But you need a place where somebody can say, okay, I actually think that the climate interest is more important than the employment interest here. So therefore, I'm going to compromise on the employment interest in order to make a more efficient objective to go forward there. And nobody has that ability right now. Nobody has the ability to, to say this, this uh, veto point is just going to be removed because it's not important enough. In, you know, in just situation after situation in contemporary governance, we don't have someone who has the final say to make a decision and then be accountable for that decision. Mm -hmm. Uh, and we have gajillions of those decisions to make. Uh, and yet, in every one, what we do is we set up a process for making that decision. Uh, and then fidelity to that process can be litigated till the end of time. Uh, and so everyone pays attention to what they can really be held accountable on is fidelity to the process. But what they should, what, what ultimately is the foundation for democratic accountability is, is, governing successfully in the public interest. Uh, and so dem real democratic legitimacy is being systematically undermined by the failure of government to do what it, it is promising to do. And it's failing to do that in the name of this sort of chasing this will of the wisp of legitimacy in the name of procedural regularity. So we, we desperately need to change our whole mindset in, in a very deep way from this procedure fetish, which is what uh, University of Michigan law professor uh, Nick Bagley uh, calls it, uh, to a reconception of government legitimacy rooted in actual effective and accountable governance. But that, that requires actually trusting people to make decisions and then holding them accountable for being the right decisions. So you've got to be able to make a call. So last question on that then. So if you, if you were trying to think about a context where we could demonstrate the success or the effectiveness of this rethinking, like, what would be the context that you would pick? I mean, obviously, the climate change 
one is the most important, but it might be, you know, too big. Um, like, is there a particular place where you'd say, let's try this? You know, it's almost like the Roman dictator structure, like this temporary powerful person who has the ability to make calls that override everybody, but is ultimately accountable for what he or she accomplishes. Like, what is the place where we should try that first? Well, you know, an interesting area and where there's glimmers of hope uh, amidst grotesque dysfunction is in government use of information technology. Uh, so once upon a time, government was the pace setter, the patron of information technology, right? They, they needed those first big mainframes were to plan nuclear uh, war uh, and to run social security databases. Uh, but over time, uh, the private sector demand for IT swamped the government demand and the government just became a, a purchaser. Government came to think of IT as just you know, as just something that you buy off the shelf, that it's, we're just basically buying automated accountants. Uh, but then when the internet revolution happened, uh, and actually IT became not buying automated accountants doing back office functions, but actually buying the provision of government services as government interacts with the citizenry online. Instead, they were still caught in this total out, off, outsourcing mode uh, and with no capacity to understand how their policies were being implemented digitally in IT. This all came to a head with the debacle of healthcare.gov, uh, which was rolled out and couldn't do anything uh, because there was no in-house IT expertise to manage the contractors and to get things done. In response to that, there is now some moves to actually to pull in uh, people involved with digital implementation into uh, higher level policy drafting uh, uh, phases. Uh, and to uh, to create opportunities for deciders to to make calls, to make trade-offs between gathering every single conceivable bit of information you could on a form or producing a form that people will actually use and get the benefits that they qualify for. Uh, so there's a small area, but but it's, a, it's an area where it has huge impacts because in place after place, where we interact with government is online, uh, and often it's frustrating and dysfunctional, mm -hmm. and particularly the people who really need government most uh, don't have the, you know, are unable to, to navigate those complexities. So, uh, so that's an important area. There's a woman, uh, Jennifer Palka, uh, who started this, yeah. started this uh, organization, Code for America, to put technologists in, uh, in, in government slots and help them you know, solve public sector problems. Uh, she then was uh, in, uh, in the Obama administration during the healthcare.gov crisis and helped start the U.S. Digital Service, which is this sort of in-house group of technologists. She's just written this great new book called Recoding America, which look, looks at the state capacity uh, problem through, you know, the lens of IT. Uh, but uh, she's seen so many just amazing examples of, of gobsmacking dysfunction occurring, not because anybody's evil, uh, but just because nobody was was connecting the the wheel of state with the with the actual rudder. Uh, it's a great book. I, I think there's some progress being made there. If there was some way, to, uh, that's an area where there needs to be a reconception of how government uses IT. Uh, we're starting to see that, and if we could get that right, it would pay huge dividends. So that's a perfect place to end because we, in fact, are going to talk to Jennifer. Um, and so this is now great. You've set it up so she is the next in this series. Um, Fantastic. So that's great. Um, I'm really grateful for your time uh, and especially for your work and especially for your demonstrating how valuable it is for people who otherwise seem to be from different political persuasions to actually stand together and, and make progress in explaining ideas in a way that both sides understand uh, powerfully. I think the captured economy is extremely important for that purpose and this new work as well. So thank you so much, Brink, for, for that contribution. Well, 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 Larry, thank you so much. It was great chatting with you and thanks for having me on. This has been episode 16 of the season five of the podcast, Another Way. These podcasts are produced by Equal Citizens. They are physically produced by Josh Elstro of Elstro Productions. You can find out more about Equal Citizens at equalcitizens.us. And you can give us your thoughts and feedback on that site. I love the feedback, especially the ideas. And you can and please do spread this podcast from that site, or share it with anybody you know who likes podcasts, which of course must be everybody.
And of course, you can also find the wonderful red donate button at EqualCitizens.us because though everything I do for Equal Citizens is pro bono, we have a team that needs to eat. So help us make it possible for them to continue to eat. Thanks again. Stay tuned for the next episode. Mm-hmm.